Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. In Listen Up, Philip, Jason Schwartzman stars as a novelist who takes refuge in his mentor's cottage when he starts having problems with his novel and his girlfriend. Also starring Elizabeth Moss, watch it on demand now while it's in theaters. And just in time for Halloween, VHS Viral, the shocking third installment of the franchise, premieres on demand October 23rd before it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with movies on demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And this week on the show, Allison and I do some TV shopping, discuss a little Latin, and then bond over some random dude we murdered as we review Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And inspired by Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, we were going to talk about other movies featuring notable Henrys. Henry Higgins from My Fair Lady, Henry Miller in Henry and June. But then that just all seemed like too much work. So we gave up and went with indie horror films instead. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Ah, ah, ah. I'll, uh, I'll add in some spooky music there. Yeah. Thunder cracks. Phil, Phil. <laughs> Maybe uh, some creaks and cracks and uh, I don't know, some other stuff. Got it. Well... First up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this time? I don't think I have any horror movies here, but I've got three titles that I'm really looking forward to checking out. Uh, One from earlier in the year that's now on VOD, and some more that are in VOD right as they're hitting theaters as well. Uh, Our first up is the film Begin Again, directed by John Carney. That's going to be available on VOD starting on October 28th. And uh, I have the the plot synopsis here from Rotten Tomatoes. And it says, Greta, played by Kira Knightley, and her longtime boyfriend Dave, played by Adam Levine, that's Maroon 5's Adam Levine, I believe, are college sweethearts and songwriting partners who decamp for New York when he lands a deal with a major label. But the trappings of his newfound fame soon tempt Dave to stray. Damn you, Adam Levine! And a reeling, lovelorn Greta is left on her own. Her world takes a turn for the better when Dan, played by Mark Ruffalo, a disgraced record label executive, stumbles upon her performing uh, on an East Village stage and is immediately captivated by her raw talent. From this chance encounter emerges an enchanting portrait of a mutually transformative collaboration set to the soundtrack of A Summer in New York City. And John Carney is the director of Once how i know him uh have you seen this film? i have seen this film and it's kind of like a shinier like more expensive remake of a remix of once okay yeah it, it covers a lot of the same themes it doesn't have the same kind of sincere lovability of mm-hmm. once but it has you know a much more famous cast right i think I think my the part of part of it that I really liked is that it's very romantic about New York City in mm-hmm. the way of someone who has 
just move there or just been, spend a month visiting before it's ground them down exactly and before you're like it's so expensive everything someday cold a real and rain difficult. is gonna come and wash away the scum from exactly. the streets that which kind of thing. you know is what we all mutter every morning when we're on the subway right uh yes it is it is very cheery about new york in this very slightly naive but very uh heartwarming way and how is adam levine he plays an asshole musician, so right. he's great. He's perfectly he's perfect cast. For it. Yeah, he's perfectly cast. Okay. I, I don't know. I know I'm on a on a spate of not liking Kira Knightley all that much right now, okay. and I think that she she's a little off putting as a character who's supposed to be a little off putting. I think she was very sanctimonious about authenticity in music. Again, that was sort of her role in what was it? Seeking a friend for the end of the world. She yes, was, she had a very impassioned speech about vinyl in that film. I recall. Yes, and the importance of vinyl as the world is literally coming to an end. Yes, and in this one, she has a speech about uh, not basically why would she ever dress up or care about her appearance or any of those things in pursuing any kind of music career. I see. Well, in spite of that, I'm I'm looking forward to this one. I love once. And the way you describe it sounds good. I'm glad they... Ch- what was the original title? It was something like, Can a Can song, a song Save, save Your life? life? Can can it... W- with a question mark, right? Yes, with a question mark. So can it... Spoiler alert. Can it, Allison? It, of course. And bring people together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, that sounds nice. Babe, we need to talk. So this is a new song for anyone who's ever been alone in the city. So you find yourself at the subway. You realize it's the end of the line. I was having a nervous breakdown, and then I heard your song. I want to make records with you. Come on, let's get out of here. You're going to have to get these beers, though. So that's Begin Again. Looking forward to checking that out. That's going to be available on VOD starting on October 28th. Uh, Our next uh, little pick here is available now on VOD. I'm looking forward to seeing this one as well. It's Camp X-Ray, directed by Peter Sattler. And this one stars Kristen Stewart and Payman Mawadi. And uh, I've got another... uh, Rotten Tomatoes apparently has excellent uh, plot synopsis here. I've got this one from there as well. It says, A young woman joins the military to be part of something bigger than herself in her small-town roots, but when she ends up as a new guard at Guantanamo Bay instead... Her mission is far from black and white, surrounded by hostile jihadists and aggressive squad mates. She strikes up an unusual friendship with one of the detainees. It's a story of two people on opposite sides of a war struggling to find their way through the ethical quagmire of Guantanamo Bay. And in the process, they form an unlikely bond that changes them both. Have you seen this one, Allison? I have seen this now, one. Now, I've heard that Kristen Stewart is actually really great in this. Would you she verify is. that? She is very great in it. And yeah. I feel like she's been, you know, she took, I think, a little break after the end of the Twilight Saga. Right. And her, she's in three movies that have at least had festival premieres this year. And they're all very strong. Like the performances are very strong, making a, a comeback. Yes, um, and I think you know an artistic comeback. At exactly. Least. Uh, she's very good in this. Uh, Payman Muadi is very good in this. It's still kind of a Sundancey indie. Like I feel like it. It's a little schematic, mm-hmm. but uh, they're both very good performances. All right. So that's Camp X-Ray, and that's available now on VOD. And finally, one more. Uh, well, this one actually is a horror pick. I take it back. I got one horror film in here for Halloween. That's good. It's directed by Brad Anderson. It's available now on VOD, and it's called Stonehurst Asylum. And Brad Anderson is the guy who did Session 9, which is an awesome. Another, you didn't rec- you're not recommending that later, right? I'm not spoiling your thunder. Okay, good. Uh, another great uh, indie horror film that's worth watching. Uh, this is his latest film, and I've got one, one more 
uh, plot synopsis from Rotten Tomatoes here. When young Dr. Edward Newgate, played by Jim Sturgis, arrives at Stonehurst Asylum in search of an apprenticeship, he is warmly welcomed by Superintendent Dr. Lamb, played by Ben Kingsley, and a mesmerizing woman by the name of Eliza Graves, played by Kate Beckinsale. Edward is intrigued by Lamb's modern methods of treating the insane until a series of unusual events leads him to make a horrifying discovery, exposing Lamb's utopia and pushing Edward to the limits of his conscience. It's inspired by a short story by Edgar Allan Poe at Stonehurst Asylum. Have you seen this one? I Clean have not sweep. seen this oh. one, unfortunately. But I've always, Two for three, not I bad. I'm always pulling for Brad Anderson. Yeah. I feel like he makes interesting movies, even if they don't always work. He's got He's like a very solid genre director he is like. he is this one got a really nice write-up on the dissolve i didn't review it obviously but uh had a i think it got either three and a half or four stars and wow. was a very positive review great cast there with ben kingsley so this one sounds like fun this could be a good a good halloween week pick for sure so that's stonehurst asylum and it's available now on vod An eerie sight, for my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. He did the mash. It caught on in a flash. He did the mash. He did the monster mash. From my laboratory in the castle east. So indie horror, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to do it this week. Obviously, we have a, sort of an iconic indie horror film that we're talking about as our listener's choice review. It's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and it's Halloween, so obviously everyone's talking about horror films. If you're listening to this, we we are a bi-weekly podcast, so I guess if you're listening to this after Halloween, you, you might be a little Halloweened out, but hopefully we're catching you in that sweet spot where you're still really obsessed with scary movies and, and witches and warlocks and all that jazz. And then also, uh, the, the website I work for, The Dissolve, we just put together this list of the, let me get the exact title right here, the 30 best American independent horror films uh, of all time, basically. And American was key. You couldn't be, like, there's no David Cronenberg in there, because he's Canadian, and, you know, there's no Mexican horror, there's no European. We focus just on American, and uh, just to basically to narrow it down, so it's not, like, the most... Uh, uh, the the most unwieldy list, Allison. I know you looked over the list. Do you remember what the number one was? If you had a pick, would you? What would your number one pick be? Well, I the number one I think is probably would be my pick. I, I feel like it's well, it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? And I feel like that. I mean, it's a great film in general. It also embodies the idea of the American indie horror film mm-hmm. so well, right? Like it, all of its restrictions are part are the things that make it so scary right all of it's the fact that it doesn't follow any normal arc that it almost almost seems like like a a documentary or a documentary and that it just it follows all of these strange beats and just you know it's it's such a great film yeah Um, that was our that was the number one I'll, i'll run down the top five here just to let people know and you can find the rest obviously just google Best American Independent Horror and the Dissolve, and you can find the whole list. But so, yeah, number one was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, obviously. Right. Number two was Halloween, the uh, the original. Number three, Night of the Living Dead, the original. <laughs> number four, Evil Dead 2. There's no there's no remake of that yet. 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 There was a remake of <laughs> Evil, Evil Dead. Dead 1. And number five was the, the Blair Witch Project. It's a pretty, pretty, I guess they're, you know, kind of the greatest hits, I suppose. But they're all... Um, 
really really great films but i you know what you what you said about how it's you know it's very emblematic of its indiness the texas chainsaw massacre i think that's an interesting comment because you know in so many ways like the history of american independent films is a lot of it is the history of american independent horror films i mean it's a it's a huge element of independent film and maybe not the most reputable part maybe not always the part that's included in the histories that are written because they're not quote unquote art but like you said it's a way for so many great filmmakers to you know, make a, a, an inroad into the industry because it's a it's a it's a commercial genre. It's something you can make on the cheap with a a chainsaw and a creepy mask, or you know, a cabin in the woods and a couple of teenagers. Or, you know, it, it it doesn't require a huge amount of money to make something that you know, in the case of some of these movies, changed filmmaking forever. Not just gave careers to good directors. I mean, not of the Living Dead changed not only film but popular culture i mean and and yeah i feel like all of those all that top five they all changed popular culture blair Blair witch same thing hugely hugely influential and and these are movies that uh, i think they're very um, maybe entertaining is not the right word because they're horror films but they they're they're satisfying on those terms but a lot of them were groundbreaking and were boundary pushing you know the Blair Witch Project I mean certainly wasn't the first found footage movie but it was the most influential certainly the most influential yeah Uh, well I think you know we're talking about horror movies now as because it's that time of year and we talk about horror throughout the year but I, I feel like it should be mentioned that the horror film industry particularly the low budget horror film industry is this kind of constant stream of films that are these days mostly ending up on VOD platforms, you know, they they get very small releases, most of them, if you're not, uh, you know, Annabelle or something like that, but that there's a constant flow of them from coming from festivals and, uh, you know, coming out of VOD or just directly to DVD or uh, getting these tiny releases, getting discussed mostly on sites like FearNet, you know, or Bloody Disgusting. Bloody Disgusting, yeah, there's a and, whole little ecosystem uh, that there. They, they, very, they don't always kind of reach even the indie conversation, much less the larger film conversation. But, but that doesn't mean that there aren't films in there that are worthy of attention. It's just... There's so many of them often, it's hard to kind of to get to find those gems. It's true. Um, I mean, there's a lot of regular non-genre independent films, too. It's a crowded uh, right. marketplace. Right. But like they're not as good business, you know, in this way. I, I think a lot about recently in particular, you know, Bloomhouse Productions, Jason Bloom's company has kind of uh, like been making such money off of the low budget film like the low budget indie like i guess now they're not even technically indies anymore right but the purge right was a low budget movie that made a ton of money uh the you know uh paranormal activity movies as well began with like a fifteen thousand dollar movie and have now they spend more but they're still like relatively low budget movies uh the low budget horror movie is good business and it is in a industry that's changing very quickly and is very unreliable it tends to be the most reliable genre right you're not gonna make 500 million dollars but you're gonna spend less and you're gonna make a good uh, yeah they're almost all invariably they're almost always profitable i think just recently you had annabelle not an independent movie obviously but i think it only cost something like five million bucks to make it was not expensive at all and it's already made like 75 million dollars worldwide so yeah it's always if you're if you're looking to break into the business it's always a if you have a good idea for a horror movie it's not a bad bad idea as the, as a first film 
or as your you know the, the, the it, they 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 tend to like you said if they don't even if they don't make it into theaters they still tend to filter somewhere onto Netflix onto VOD and in fact there's we could have done uh, we could really do a whole podcast I don't mean one episode I mean a whole series on indie horror there are a lot available on streaming and I don't know if we want to run down I guess we'll run them down at the end there's a lot more options if you're looking to put together a marathon of some kind perhaps on Halloween Halloween is a Friday night you know so if you're looking for like an all-night marathon or something there are a ton that you can watch just on between Netflix and Hulu I found a lot of options so Maybe we'll run those down at the end. Let's get to our picks, and then I can just kind of shout out those at the very end of the segment. But do you want to go first, Allison? Sure. I tried to pick two relatively recent movies that were kind of of that low-budget, you know, indie horror flow of movies. I've got one of those. I have one classic just because I watched it recently, so it was fresh in my mind. Yeah, so I watched two movies that I'd heard good things about, and uh, one in particular I was pleasantly surprised by, and I'll talk about that one first. It's Absentia which is now streaming on Netflix. This is a 2011 horror film that is written and directed by Mike Flanagan. It uh, is a genuinely low-budget film. It had a... I think it was made for about $70,000, It was crowdfunded, shot in two weeks in Los Angeles, has no big stars. The lead actress is the director's wife, Courtney Bell, who, like her character, was pregnant at the time of filming... Um, she plays Trisha, a woman who is, as I mentioned, living in Los Angeles. Her husband, Daniel, has been missing for seven years when the movie starts. So obviously the father of her baby is not her husband. Um, she is preparing to have him declared dead in absentia, which you have to right. wait seven years for. And it's been kind of a taxing process, not just from dealing with someone who suddenly went missing, but also all his bills kept coming in. It's this, she feels very in limbo because she doesn't know if he's dead. She doesn't know what happened to him. Um, So this is kind of a moment that's difficult for her, but also potentially a way for her to move on. And her sister, Callie played by Katie Parker, who is a recovering drug addict whose sobriety may not actually be that stable comes to be with her during this particular time. And they obviously haven't seen each other for a while she doesn't know who the father of her sister's baby is, um, but the, they're they're together and they kind of are talking things out. And the horror element of this comes in several aspects. Like initially, it's that Trisha keeps seeing her husband like as this kind of apparition who's angry, and it's a potentially a a manifestation of her own guilt because she still doesn't know if he's dead and she, you know, hasn't really moved on yet. But there's also uh, a a storyline involving this pedestrian tunnel that goes under a hill and this idea that there are things, there are things that might abduct you. Uh, One of the running themes is the Billy Groats Gruff and the, the monster under the bridge. But then there's also this kind of urban legend aspect in the neighborhood Uh, There's a a part involving a great cameo by Doug Jones, who is out of costume for once and in person. I'm sorry to stop by. We tried to call. I had to unplug the phone. It was crazy. We talked to the doctor. We'd like to talk to Daniel again. He's asleep. We can wait a while. You talked to him at the hospital. He didn't say anything. We were hoping if we talked to him again, someplace he was more comfortable, that... 
He's in here. Uh, the movie really kind of surprisingly elegantly weaves together the idea of something supernatural, the idea that there's nothing supernatural, and uh, the uh, the kind of concept of people leaving and of of running away from all of your responsibilities uh, versus the person that you leave behind and how they deal with that absence in their lives. And, you know, that goes for missing Daniel, but also for Callie, who's been so unreliable a person as to kind of hop from place to place and vanish from people's lives. And for Trisha, who's got all of these responsibilities piling up and kind of talks a lot about just escaping or running away from them all. Um, there are very limited special effects, and but the movie handles that very well, that, um, you know, it it's, it has a $70,000 budget. It doesn't try to do anything so ambitious that it just kind of knocks you out of the film. But the monsters that are, that are in it that you mostly see in shadow are these kind of insectile things that uh, it signals a lot through, through sound. And I, I, it makes that work very well. This is not one of those horror films that is, uh, you know, a lot of jump scares, but it does make great use out of out of people out of things out of focus in the background or in the corner of the room particularly when it comes to someone's memory like uh, of a person who may or may not be there and in that way it reminded me a little bit of a film that i know is on your list the dissolves list matt and one of my favorite films of the year uh, it follows mm-hmm. which uh, unfortunately is not coming out till next year radius picked it up but is as another movie that makes great use of the space in a frame and the possibility for something to be kind of in the corner and how frightening that can actually end up being. So I was really pleasantly surprised by this film. Uh, you know, I think it's it's a little creaky as all low-budget indie horror movies can be. Uh, and there is one one moment where there's a, an attempt at exposition that is a little too literal. But... Uh, otherwise, it actually works very well on multiple levels. And I think given that its biggest special effect is a pedestrian bridge or a pedestrian tunnel, it manages to make that look very creepy. So uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Absentia, that is now streaming on Netflix. All right. Sounds good. I haven't seen that one. I'll have to check it out. Maybe I'll watch it on Halloween. It has a terrible poster on netflix that, okay that does not don't ne- let that sway you yeah it makes it look much trashier than the actual I'm movie look at is. it right now i have to uh, see this the movie for myself. Is, yeah the movie is like a fairly meditative movie about like kind of mourning and about trying to move on <laughs> <laughs> yeah the poster makes it look like it is a cheapy like a like a um, asylum movie or exactly, something exactly with like a lot of made... like kind of boob jobs pop barely restrained by tank tops and cheap monsters yeah there's like a woman she doesn't look like she's wearing any clothes uh and she's like being dragged or something that's yes. the that's the cover you're right so so ignore that yourself. ignore that or if I, you're looking like I'm going to have to be honest I I would I would watch this movie. Yeah, if you're looking for that type of movie, you will be disappointed by Absentia. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, fair enough. Uh my first pick, I guess I cheated a little bit. I mean, we didn't specify for this uh podcast certainly that we were just doing American indie horror films. The the list on the dissolve was. But we ma- we made no such distinction here, which is good cuz I I'm recommending a movie that's not American at all. 
Um, but this was a movie that I've been really looking forward to watching for a while, and I finally had an excuse here, so that's why I watched it. It really grabbed me, no pun intended. All right, fine, pun intended, from, from the very premise. Um, and it's called Grabbers from 2012, directed by John Wright, and it's streaming now on Netflix. I don't think this one has a salacious or misleading uh, poster art on Netflix. Pretty sure the uh, poster art, it's, it's pretty accurate. It's yeah. got like a big squid monster it's on it. tentacles, and then I think there's a hint of like Irish countryside or yeah, something. Yeah, it, that's, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, there's, there's truth in advertising here at least. Um, but yeah, the premise, I just thought, as soon as I heard about it when it premiered at Sundance, I think in 2012, I just thought, this sounds so great. I have to watch this movie. So I was really excited to finally get an excuse to. That premise is that there's this... You know, it's a, it's a standard small-town alien invasion movie with a few twists. The main one being that the aliens here are these they're like squid-leech creatures from beyond the stars, and they suck blood, but they have one weakness, that they can't drink blood if it has a high blood alcohol level. They're allergic to alcohol. So in order to stay alive, the residents of this small Irish island need to stay very drunk through this night where the creatures are all attacking them. And it's such a great idea for a horror comedy because you can, everyone gets to be drunk and that just lends itself so nicely to both the scares and, and the comedy. And it's used very well in, in the film. Oh. There goes the scientific discovery of our time. Imagine all that we could have learned. Oh, still moving. Um, the star of Grabbers is Richard Coyle, who was really great on the British sitcom Coupling, if you've ever seen that show. And he's very charming here as this sullen, uh, alcoholic policeman who's the one guy who kind of has to save the town and in another clever little twist, like, even though he's the town drunk slash policeman, he's sort of come to this moment in his life where he's thought, maybe it's time that I should get sober right at the point when being an alcoholic might actually save his life. So he has to kind of decide whether or not to maintain his, his very newfound sobriety or to get liquored up, perhaps, to uh, to fight off the monsters. Grabbers very clearly influenced by a bunch of different movies, and the one most immediately is probably Shaun of the Dead. It's a darkly comic take on a classic horror subgenre that you know builds to a big showdown at a pub. All that is in Shaun of the Dead. All that is in Grabbers, and I I, I think for that reason alone, I would certainly not put this in the elite of indie horror movies. This would not be a contender for the Dissolves list, even if it was expanded to international films it's not an all-time classic it's a rung or two down the ladder from there but it's good i really enjoyed it It has some very funny scenes including a really great and gross alien autopsy i love a good alien autopsy scene that involves a lot of bodily fluids and you know exploding creatures and all that jazz there's some very solid scares as well and for a little independent horror movie from ireland it's got some very impressive uh, computer special effects and the fact that it is set on this little island, I guess, off the coast of Ireland, adds a nice visual element as well because it's, it's beautiful. A lot of the movie takes place during the day, kind of building to this one night where the grabbers are going to try to, you know, eat all the people in the town. But a lot of the buildup takes place during the day, and, and the, the vistas, the views of this island are absolutely stunning. It's actually 
a pretty good uh, a travel video for this for this island, other than the blood leeches from outer space. If you could, if I could be assured that there weren't any of those, I I could be convinced to buy a ticket right now. So, you know, if you if you're a fan of Shaun of the Dead, if you're looking for a similarly themed and toned horror comedy. Uh, you, I don't think you're going to go wrong with Grabbers. I thought it was very satisfying on its terms. Uh, you should check it out. So it's Grabbers, and it's streaming now on Netflix. All right, my next pick, I just noticed that both of my films happen to involve pregnancy. So pregnancy horror, it's big, Interesting. Uh, big in the <laughs> film circuit, I guess. There's none of that in moment. mine. Yeah, but uh, it is... Uh, a slightly more uneven film than Absentia, but one that has some very interesting, promising elements. It is called Proxy, and it is now available for rent on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and also, here's a freebie for you, it happens to be streaming on Netflix. It is directed by Zach Parker, who, very interestingly, has now shot four features in his hometown of Richmond, Indiana. The he filmmaking went- mecca. Well, he like he went to L.A. for a while, tried mm-hmm. to make it work for a little bit, and then was kind of like, why am I trying to make indie films here when it's much easier for me to raise money and to shoot things in, in my hometown Yeah, uh, that he apparently doesn't tend to screen his films at because it's a fairly conservative place, and this is not... <laughs> this is a, a movie that deals with some very dark themes. It's pretty intense. Yeah, this one yeah. I've seen. Um, it's uh, no big stars. Its biggest star is Joe Swanberg, the filmmaker slash actor slash doing a lot of things these days but uh he's actually uh joe is not always someone i love to see as an actor i feel like sometimes he's pretty good in this but he is very good in this yeah um but it's it's a movie that uh really is built around a trio of women Uh, joe swanberg plays the wife of one of these characters you have esther who is a 20 something woman who at the start of the film is pregnant uh, she's played by Alexia Rasmussen. There's Melanie, played by Alexa Havens, who Esther meets in a grieving mother support group. And then there's uh, Annika, played by Kristen Klebe, who has ties to Esther that we figure out later. But um, this movie kind of moves along this trio and reveals a world in which basically everyone has pathological problems <laughs> and, and very dark ones. I you know I I think that the first half of this movie works much better than the second half, but that uh, that probably Alexa ha- ha- Havens who plays Melanie is the kind of find in terms of the actors. She plays this Stepford wife looking uh, suburban mother who has a real dark side. Um, but what's interesting about Parker is that he clearly I think has watched a lot of Brian De Palma. And uh, to try and to try and kind of mimic that style while working within the confines of a very low budget is no easy thing, given that De Palma, I feel like, often looks fairly lush and is himself aping Hitchcock. But he actually pulls it off. The, the movie has this very heightened feel, uh, even when it's, it's working within its limitations. And it, it, it pulls off this world in which everyone's a little crazy very well. And I, I think that it it's psychological portraits of motherhood, or at least these very warped versions of motherhood are, are pretty, are pretty edgy. Um, I will, the basic premise of the movie is that Esther, who starts off at a doctor's appointment, she's, uh, you know, very far along in her pregnancy leaves 
and is attacked by someone who specifically targets her baby. Um, and she loses the baby, which is why she ends up in the support group. The The basic brutality of that act is really only the starting point for some, some very uh, interesting twists. Most of these women, they've been through some really horrific things. Do you think coming here helps? I do. I mean, there is something about hearing other people tell you terrible things that have happened to them. It kind of makes you feel better about your own problems. It's like you're not alone. Is this how I look? Honest? Yes. Hey, but don't worry, that's why you're here, right? How come you don't? I guess most of my damage is on the inside. As I mentioned, I, I think this movie kind of slows down a lot in the second half. It's a little overlong, but it, it really... It's so ambitious for given what it's working with. And I don't know that it would fall in traditional horror necessarily, but it kind of falls between horror and a thriller. Uh, and, you know, I was really impressed by it. Uh, for, given given the, the size of the production, I think it, it manages to, to hit a lot of the marks that it sets for itself. Um, were you a fan of this movie? Uh, yeah, I think we're almost exactly on the same page. I thought it was, you know, for what it is as a, this really small independent horror film, I thought it was it looks really good and it has some really shocking twists, um, which you've done a nice job not spoiling, so I'm not going to either. But I thought at a certain point, you know, there's sort of like a, at least for me, there's sort of like a bell curve of twists. You know, right. a little tw- a little bit of twists is fantastic. But then once you reach a certain point when you just keep piling twist on twist on twist... I think you start to hit the law of diminishing returns. And that was sort of how I felt like the first half of this movie I thought was fantastic because you really don't know where it's going. And then there's sort of a very key moment where everything kind of changes. And after that, there's, they keep trying to change things again and again. And, and I just thought that stuff in that second half was not as, not as successful as the first half, particularly because once the game is up, once you know, something's going on and things are going to keep kind of, once you know the rug's being pulled out, you can kind of uh, you can kind of steady brace yourself, yourself and brace yourself right. exactly. So yeah. yeah, I think it's totally worth watching. It's an interesting movie, but it's I, I feel like yeah. it kind of it, pro- it approaches like comedy yeah. a bit towards the a little end. bit a it's little a bit little yeah. Camp. If yeah. I was if I was you know giving Zach Parker advice and he definitely wants my advice, I'm sure I would just say like kind of simplify a little bit. You know, like you're di- you're you've got the goods, you've got the talent maybe trust in that a little bit more and sort of let that kind of speak for itself a little bit more and don't let the twists kind of overwhelm everything. Right. Yeah, I would agree. But, you know, there's just the very outsiderness of this, the feeling that it doesn't, it doesn't seem to fall within the, the rules of a lot of, of films, you know, that you would place against this budget wise is pretty exciting. That's fine, so yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing Zach Parker's further work. And Absolutely. I think, you know, watching this one, y- you will too. It's promising. Yeah. yeah. So that's Proxy, and you can rent it on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and you can also find it streaming on Netflix. Yeah. The De Palma, I think the De Palma comparison is right on the money. I mean, I don't know if Zach Parker is a fan of De Palma, but certainly as a fan of De Palma, I 
felt a, a similarity. And I think if you if you're listening out there are a De Palma fan and you've seen all of those movies, this might be a nice one to to check out. All right, my last pick is is the one classic film of the bunch. I guess if we had maybe we should have just specified new uh, new indie horror. What can you do? The the reason I chose it is because I just got just rewatched it and just wrote about it, so it really freshened my mind and it's good for a recommendation. And it's available on Amazon and iTunes. It's from 1984 and is the original A Nightmare on Elm Street, directed by Wes Craven. And I kind of have a a complicated relationship with these movies. I would say this franchise uh, as a kid. You know, you know how it is, Allison. Like you're, my, I mean, my parents were fairly protective. You know, they, you, about what kind of movies I was able to watch. But you go to sleepovers. You know, you're, oh, yeah. you're on cable, and so I you you see a lot of R-rated movies. You see a lot of horror movies. And honestly, I was never that afraid of horror movies. I can remember vividly at a pretty young age being at sleepovers and watching like Friday the Thirteenth movies and laughing and thinking they were totally silly. And they didn't really phase me. I, I just I enjoyed them. I, I was really never that scared of them. I was I was afraid of the Michael Jackson thriller video for some reason. Interesting. But not not horror movies. Most horror movies that I saw at that age didn't scare me. The one exception, though, was A Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger. And to this day, I haven't seen the entire series. I've seen a few of them. And it's not because I dislike them. It's the opposite. I like them a lot. But I actually they I find them disturbing. I find the idea of Freddy disturbing. I think of all the horror monsters, I think he might be the scariest. He has because he has no weaknesses, um, and he has he seems undefeatable. He too. seems undefeatable, right? And he's unavoidable. He's inescapable because we all have to sleep, and as soon as you fall asleep, that's that's when you become his target, right? And so that's kind of the some of the stuff that I wrote about in this piece. I we were doing I did a, a piece about it for for the dissolve, and because uh, we, we were doing. Movies of the week are our usual feature, and we were doing horror movies for October, and so I picked Nightmare on Elm Street. And rewatching it, what I was struck by now as a 33-year-old, and I, I, I can now watch it without being you know, totally terrified. Only, I would say I'm only mildly terrified at this point. It, again, is that idea that Freddy, he breaks all the rules, and not just of reality and physics, but of screenwriting, too. Like, I feel normally you make a villain there has to be some way to defeat him, right? You think of every famous monster, there's, oh, yeah. some, there's have, something. There are rules. Right. Someone will have a weakness right. that Make you can exploit. Vampires, you can stake them through the heart. Zombies, you can shoot them in the head. You know, werewolves, they have silver bullets, all that kind of stuff. They have clear-cut boundaries, and that keeps you feeling kind of safe in some way. And Freddy doesn't work that way. He can do whatever he wants. You know, he's killed. I don't know how many times. He's killed a bunch of times just in the first movie. Oh, yeah. And he comes back to life every single time. And then he keeps repeating throughout the franchise. And I think that's what makes, ironically, that's what makes A Nightmare on Elm Street so scary is the fact that he doesn't he, follow any of the usual rules. He doesn't rules. obey the rules. Well, he, he even, he breaks the series. He, in New Nightmare. That's true. He like, <laughs> he even breaks through the wall of the series. That's right. It becomes metatextual in a movie. I, I don't think that movie is fantastic. I think kind of like Proxy, it begins to kind of spin a little out of control in the second half, but it's such a clever it's idea. such a good idea. Yeah, it's such a good idea. And I know, I think and it BuzzFeed, actually, right, had a, yes, just had a long, a long piece about it, which was really it. good. Yeah. Well, I feel like, and it fits with just what you said, that he breaks the screenwriting rules, that right. like, of all the people who could actually make a convincing, in-character 
Sag into the real world that way. He's it the would one. be Freddy. Well, yeah. right, and I think what the reason we accept it because I think we do tend to prefer our monsters to have some kind of escape, coherence. escape hat, yeah, yeah, coherence, escape hat. Is that in our real nightmares, the villains don't have that, right? Like they'll, you know, the boogeyman will follow you wherever, and he doesn't care if you know you have a a silver bullet or a stake or whatever. You know, the the bad guys in in real dreams don't play fair either, and I think that that's what the movie captures so perfectly. Robert England, fantastic as Freddy. I, 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 you know, they remade. I, I, I can't remember if I saw the remake or not. Certainly, if I did, it didn't make much of an impression. But it's hard to think of anyone else playing that role. I mean, Jackie Earl Haley. No offense to him, but it's like that's one of the most iconic portrayals, not just in horror movies, but in all of cinema. Is, is Robert England as Freddy is unbelievable, and it has so many memorable images. The first movie, in particular, the teenager being swallowed whole by his bed and. The one kid who flies into the air and then is dragged, bleeding up the wall. Freddy's arms extending like they're made of, I don't know, like giant spaghetti. I don't know how else to describe <laughs> it. And and the glove, of course, the famous Freddy glove shooting sparks as it scrapes along the wall. And it, you know, it even creates this, it like has this, vis- you, you, just thinking about it like sends a shiver up your spine. And I think it almost lends credence to the idea in the movie that like these kids dream and their dreams physically affect them. It's like the movie physically affects you because it upsets you and it, it makes your hair st- like physically stand on end when he <laughs> scrapes his, uh, his claws against the wall. So it really is, it really is a nightmare. And it, you know, and I, even just the fact that it's not the nightmare on Elm street, it's a nightmare on Elm street. This is just one nightmare. And sure enough, there were many more to come and maybe not all of them were fantastic, but the first one definitely is. So that's a, a Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, if you've never seen it, it is very scary. I will attest to that, but it's worth watching. It's available on Amazon and iTunes. And I will also mention Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Not as good a movie, but a very interesting movie for a bunch of reasons. Uh, is currently streaming on Netflix as well. And I guess let me run down now some of those other indie horror movies. If you're looking this Halloween to make a marathon... Let me give you some of the ones we haven't mentioned here. The House of the Devil, Netflix. Let's just run down all the Netflix movies here. Let's see. We got Reanimator, Day of the Dead. You mentioned Proxy. I had that on here. Human Centipede, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, which I think we reviewed on this podcast on an earlier episode. Stakeland, The Innkeepers, Resolution, which is another really awesome recent. You were a big fan of that. Yeah. Resolution is a really cool movie that's worth checking out. Troll Hunter, the remake of Maniac. Silent House, The Stuff, which is a great uh, classic 80s indie horror movie. Okay, and now on Hulu, if you've got Hulu, Sisters, the Brian De Palma film, speaking of him. Uh, The Human Centipede 2, Puppet Master, Antichrist. I think that's a horror film. I would qualify it as a horror film. The Original Evil Dead, The House on Sorority Row, Eraserhead, that was on our The Dissolves list of the best American independent horror films. The original Little Shop of Horrors, Bucket of Blood. There's a whole bunch of Corman, if you're looking for some really old-school American independent horror. And finally, Carnival of Souls. So 
there you go. That that should keep you plenty busy for the rest of Halloween if you're looking for some horror movies to stream. If you're if you're looking for that to watch, you're in luck because there's a lot of them that are available right now. Did you really kill your mama? What? Did you really kill your mama? I guess I did. How'd it happen? I stabbed her. Otis said you hit her with a baseball bat. Otis in there? Yeah. Well, he's mistaken. Well, that brings us to our listener's choice section. Every episode, we turn our main review over to you, giving you three options to vote on in our listener's choice poll. And this time around, for Halloween, your choices were the horror-themed American Mary, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And it was a rare poll in which all three choices kept pretty even for much of the voting. But in the end, Henry won out. Directed by John McNaughton, who went on to direct Mad Dog and Glory and Wild Things, among other movies, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer was made for $110,000. It was raised by the producers, and then McNaughton was basically instructed to make a bloody horror movie. And though the results are not horror in the traditional sense, certainly, instead he made something loosely based on real-life serial killers Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, Michael Rooker, who more recently was on The Walking Dead and in Guardians of the Galaxy, plays Henry, a serial killer living, at least at the moment, in Chicago with an old prison buddy named Otis, played by Tom Tolles. Their lives together get complicated by the arrival of Otis's sister, Becky, played by Tracy Arnold, who is fleeing an abusive marriage and does not seem to realize that she has ended up in a similarly bad situation. But Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer was shot in 1985, was not released until 1990, in part because of issues with the content and battles with the MPAA. Henry uh, is a killer, and he inducts Otis into his casual murders of prostitutes and random passers-by. But compared to films these days, its actual gore is not so extreme. Uh, and its most shocking moments may actually be the uh, other than the gore. Henry uh, is is about killers, but its focus is just as much on the day to day lives of the group of this group of dysfunctional and highly damaged people. So, Matt, my question to you is: Did you find this film scary? And if so, what aspects? You know, I didn't find it all that scary. I liked it. I thought it was an effective film. But I can't say I was sitting there chilled to the bone the most of the time. I guess the one scene that was, I would say, was maybe not scary but unsettling was, I have to imagine, the scene that got into the most trouble with the censors is there's this long scene, kind of clockwork orange-esque of kind of sexual violence Yeah, that's very hard to watch and is graphic and horrible and very unsettling. And I, I have to assume that that was the main scene that got them into the most trouble with the MPA because there's not a ton of violence in this movie. No, a lot of it you see, I mean, the film's big trick is that you'll see a corpse after Henry's done before you, you right. never see you, what him in, in action. You don't see him like find the person. You don't see him kill the person. You just see the, you see a dead body and you and kind hear of hear the audio. Yeah, yeah. You hear it. And it's an eerie, effective sort of device. And I found it, that worthwhile but yeah not i mean certainly compared to movies that we've you know in the last 25 30 years 
that have gotten R ratings from the MPAA. I mean, compare this to any Saw film, and all of those have ratings. This doesn't really rate, except that one scene, which, I mean, I'm sure now would get an, would get an R rating. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. I, I think it's just... I, that scene in particular and uh, is disturbing just because it also it looks like it could be real you know that like the violence in it as opposed to when you have blood splattering everywhere it it looks so unscripted it looks so kind of clumsy and unplanned and the way that just plays out that is troubling and it also has the element of at at one point in the film these guys steal a a video camera an early camcorder and so they begin filming their crimes including this one which i think adds another another element of disturbing kind of voyeuristic sexualized element to it that probably doesn't help make the scene any right. less disturbing because it's like a it's a grainy vhs version of it so it has a quality almost of a snuff film and i mean obviously it's not but i think that adds to the the nature of it feeling wrong and icky and and not something that should be watched by most people, I suppose. Yeah, I like this film a lot, but I, I found the most effective parts to be the weird, almost like buddy movie aspects of it. Uh-huh. Uh, like the scene of violence unfolds and it unfolds. It's being taped. You see it being taped. And then you see them sitting on the couch watching it. Like they're just two roommates, you know, having a beer, (laughs) watching a home video. Right. And the normalcy of it and also just the kind of inane conversations that they have are, I think, what the film does so well Mm -hmm. is that they're they're not masterminds. They're not even... There's nothing about them that signals obvious otherness you know like otis is a like gas station attendant attendant, and he seems to have kind of sexual compulsions and uh henry obviously is a a murderer but he also just looks like a kind of guy in a like a normal guy driving around in his car right and and they don't do anything particularly obviously evil at home you know there's nothing about them that signals anything out of the ordinary well well i mean otis does you know comes on to his sister sure no times. i mean like in That's the way they be, but evil. like from the outside a lot of the things they do are just they kind can of pass exactly as, as normal people i'll agree with you most of the time yes they can yeah that's how they can get close enough to to people to do these horrible, horrible yeah things but I, I guess i mean i mean in the in a world in which we watch so many movies about genius serial killers right right like Like the saw the saw model with like elaborate plans or like weird kind of tastes or they're acting out something deliberately this major thing that happened in their childhood and they're setting scenes and all of that and there's rituals there's none of that here they even talk about how they kill people differently every time so that the police will never catch on to the fact that they're serial killers right and that may be another one of the kind of quote unquote scarier or more disturbing and thus more effective parts of the movie is that they're as you say they're not masterminds but they get away with everything i don't think there's a, a cop in the movie you know there's no hint that these guys might get caught i mean Henry does talk later in the film about how he stays ahead of the cops by moving around a lot and, as you mentioned, killing people in different ways so there's no pattern that people can can uh, grab onto. But his the, the unspoken part of that is basically, as long as I do that, 
I can kill people however I want, whenever I want, and get away with it. And I think that is, if not scary, it's certainly disturbing. And that was one of the things that I really was struck by in the movie was it, it has this kind of nightmarish, almost like fantasy quality to it. This, I, The way that he can kind of kill with impunity. You know, it's almost a a serial killer's fantasy of serial killing, which is interesting. Uh, you mentioned that it is based on, sort of based on this, Loosely, yeah. Loosely based on this true crime or this guy, this serial killer or these serial killers. And I was looking at that and looking on Wikipedia, which, of course, is never wrong. But there's an element (laughs) to their stories that apparently they made up, that they they, they falsely, you know, at least Henry, the real Henry. Claimed like 600 murders. He claimed to have murdered a lot more people than he actually, that they could actually prove that he had done. And I think that that, aspect of it kind of filters into the movie which has this kind of horrifying idea of this guy can just walk around and murder hookers and murder women and murder this guy and 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 never face any sort of punishment or and and i thought that that aspect of the real life guy kind of filtered in it has this kind of you know, it, it reminded me in some ways of, of the Chicago version of Taxi Driver. You know, the grimy locations and this guy driving around in his car and picking people up. And and almost where we see, like there's, in Taxi Driver, we never really quite, like the ending has sometimes been speculated as, as, as a fantasy in some ways. And maybe the ending of is all in, in Travis Bickle's mind. And in here, it, it, it almost felt like that the whole movie, that there's like, there's an element of wish fulfillment, horrifying wish fulfillment to it that I found kind of sick and gross and disturbing in an effective way. Yeah. No, that's interesting because we see that Henry is this slightly unreliable narrator, even when he talks about his like his kind of origin story as a damaged person, when he talks about his mother who he killed and like she would treat him very terribly. And she gave him this kind of fear of sex that like kind of runs through the story, Mm -hmm. but that, even within the same story, he mentions two different ways in which he killed her. And obviously they can't both be true, but he's not, I liked that it was not, he was not reliable. And also that it kind of undermined the idea of being like this terrible thing happens to you. And then therefore you are this damaged, dangerous person because it almost suggests that it's not that important, you know, that he, something was wrong with Henry no matter what. Mm. And it does, I I know that this film has been praised for having a realistic portrayal of uh, like a sociopath. And I do feel like, I mean, he's so, he's so often affectless. Uh, no one seems to notice Michael Rooker, you know, like at one point he tells someone, I love you too, I guess. And <laughs> which should be a warning sign if yeah. someone says that to you and seems genuinely ambivalent, maybe they don't mean it, but uh, that, you know, clearly a lot of normal ups and downs are just not happening for him. The only thing he seems to get very excited about is killing people. And he seems to really go at it like a hobby, you know? Right. (laughs) I will say I wouldn't have minded more of, of Henry and more inside the mind of Henry for all that, everything I just said about it feeling like a fantasy at all. At times it feels more like a portrait of the serial killers friends than it does. of Well, he's a little impenetrable. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we haven't mentioned Becky, but she is really, she in some ways is the heart of the movie in that like, she is the one who, 
I don't know, she's this really tragic character. She's someone who's just been abused by different people all of her life. Yeah. And she really decides to see Henry as a potential savior or a potential love interest, despite the fact that every she, she indication. Knows, yeah, she's yes. got a, I mean, maybe she doesn't know the full extent of his she crimes, knows, but, but she's got, she knows enough. Yeah. She knows enough. And she gets really very little positive feedback from him <laughs> that he would be a good candidate for right. these things. And right. yet she kind of hopelessly has settled on that anyway. I, you know, my, I feel like my personal favorite scene in the movie is not, it's not one of those kind of horrible set pieces at all. It's the scene where they first have the camera and they're kind of just goofing off in the apartment. Right. Because it's this kind of giddy scene that has all of these layers of menace underneath it. Yeah. You know, like Otis is kind of making slightly sexual overtures Mm -hmm. towards his sister and she's kind of goofing around and, and trying to get the attention of Henry who really isn't giving her the right kind of feedback. Uh, it's, and it's all shot like this grubby home movie and it, it's yeah, it's a really well done scene. What did you think of the score? It kind of drove me nuts. Just the sort of the stock music, stock, the, stock scary music yes. quality of it. I, I didn't, I certainly noticed it and, uh, I, d- the, I did not get the sense that they spent a lot of money or time on the score. It didn't bother me that much. I didn't find it too obtrusive, but I certainly did notice it. I, I, w- I can't, I can't, I can't make a defense for it. I can't mount an argument in its favor. It just didn't bother me as much as it bothered you clearly. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I think it was the major part that my major complaint with it would be that mm. you didn't also need to signal now something bad <laughs> is <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah. It, pretty clear often when something bad is happening yeah and it does kind of fly in the face of what the the movie does well which is it has this kind of very authentically seedy atmosphere you know i I mentioned the chicago taxi driver thing and that was one thing i liked about it all these these authentically kind of grungy chicago locations you know there's scenes where henry's walking around and he's walking past you know hot dog stands and late night bodegas and all these places and they just look they just look wonderfully awful and, and there are a lot of just real people on those shots because yeah. they couldn't afford extras. Yeah, so. it has it has a real authentic grime to it, and and you know, kind of library horror music just doesn't really fit that vibe. You know, I, I think that that's the reason that uh, you really get bothered by it is it just clashes with the kind of more naturalistic, authentic kind of vibe that the rest of the movie has. It just doesn't fit. Yeah. Uh, this also the this for a movie that's a low budget horror horror ish movie, uh, Henry Portrait of Portrait of a Serial Killer does feature some really thoughtful shots and camera movements. Like uh, there's one the one that stands out to me in particular is uh, there's a scene in which Henry first kills someone in front of Otis and they're both in this car with prostitutes mm. and the camera kind of moves up to the car and kind of alongside the car as this is happening slowly and it's just there's so much nice sense of space for this horrific thing that is happening inside <laughs> the car but you know there are a few moments like that uh like it's just very thoughtfully shot uh you know those early scenes in which we see various bodies that henry has left behind With are often seeing the pan across yeah. the room and then there's the body there yeah it's um, it is, I think, a kind of unusually well done in that way. And the last couple of scenes, the way that they sort of reveal the final fates of the characters, 
also incredibly well done and and you know not there's very little exposition there it's all done with like you said with shots with with the placement of the camera with slow zooms i mean i thought the last two or three scenes that was like my favorite part of the movie i just thought it was so horrifying but also totally inevitable i mean you sort of know from the very beginning what's going to happen but so the way that they played it in an understated way i thought was really chilling and effective yeah, I agree. I I thought it ended in this very it kind of perfect way, uh, given everything that we'd seen before. Yeah. All right, so that's Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, and that's streaming now on Netflix. All right, before we get to behind the eight ball, let's uh, let's hit Singer and Wilmore's complete, concise, and totally succinct new release roundup. Allison, you just really want, even though it came out last week, you just really want to talk about something. You're because well, you enjoyed I, it so much. I did. Well, there's also no. Apparently, no big releases opening this week. Not a ton of stuff opening. And and we have not. We're both seeing Interstellar tomorrow. That's right. So we can't tell you our thoughts on that yet. Not yet. But we both have seen John Wick, and I did like that a lot. And I don't know how it did in the box office this past week. It did okay. It it came in second place behind Ouija. Oh yes, Ouija. Did you see Ouija? I did not. They air. It showed the same night as John Wick as the press screening. I had to choose one or the other. You chose. You chose Keanu. I did, and I feel like that was a good decision. Mm. As much as I love board game movies, uh, but yeah, John Wick. Like I feel like it and the Equalizer are very similar movies, but John Wick is a little more fun. Okay, Even, I didn't see the Equalizer. Well, I, but John Wick you know, is fun. Unlike. You know, the Equalizer does have Denzel Washington using the contents of a Home Depot-like store to kill people in a Home Alone fashion. That's not bad. That sounds good. No, that is good. I could get into that. Yeah, but John Wick, one, kills all these people because of his puppy. Yes, someone the cutest beagle puppy in history. cutest puppy, and the most traumatic part of a movie in which so many people die is the fact that this puppy gets hurt. And also, the other thing is, like, his, his wife has died. And that right. doesn't send him over the edge. No, it's the puppy. But then his puppy is and killed. And his car gets stolen. And his car gets stolen. And then he's like, that is it. Exactly. The line has been crossed, dude. And then the other very entertaining thing about John Wick is that it presents this whole underworld, highly organized underworld, yeah. like this assassin economy, basically. Yes. And it's all based around a boutique hotel. The Continental. The Continental, which is membership based and also runs on gold coins. Yep but uh, has an elaborate system of rules and also just some very charming looking rooms and an on-call doctor who will stitch you up when you right. get hurt by murdering Russian gangsters. Yeah, and it, it really almost feels like a pilot of a TV show to me. This whole, I would love that. Right? This whole world of, of un, like the, the, with all, like, as you said, it's so regimented and has all these rules, who you can kill, who you can't kill, what you can do at the hotel. And, and it also has this feeling, I think the thing that entertained me so much about it is that it has this feeling of like, like a professional conference or something where you're like, oh, it's a salesperson's conference of whatever, you know, right. the, the Northwest salesperson's conference. You like, know all the people. You know all the people. They're drinking at the bar. You're not allowed to talk work at the bar. <laughs> like <laughs> It's like Perkins, Henry, you know, like uh, greeting everyone. I, I feel like there's something very funny and kind of small community about that that, yeah. I th- that works very well. And the action sequences are fairly well done. Yeah, they're it's pretty some, slick. It's it's it looks good. Like it's a nice looking movie. Stylish. Uh, Theon Greyjoy is in it. Keanu does good, good work. He's fifty years old and looks younger than me. <laughs> yes. Wears a nice suit. I hate him. <laughs> Damn you, Keanu! You owe me a life. 
No, it's an entertaining movie. Yeah, it's fun. If you're looking for something that's uh, just a good time, it is certainly a good time. Yeah, I would agree with you completely. All right, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball. This is a segment where we give you three titles that are new on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations, and we give you one film chosen blindly from our My Lists. Allison, you're going to go first this week. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's start with three new titles. Okay, first up, Django Unchained, Quentin Tarantino's latest. Quentin Tarantino, who? Some some guy. All right. Yeah. Well, tell me about him later. Later, later. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, his latest is new to Netflix. His 2012 slavery themed spaghetti western, starring Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz as a former slave and a bounty hunter who team up and have adventures and wreak havoc on a plantation. Um, can I tell you a secret, Matt? Sure not an overwhelming fan of this one and yet you are recommending it because i feel like it's one of those movies that has to be reckoned with and if it's going to be streaming then i might take another look at it to see if it looks any better to me i think we saw this together we did at the the, uh, screening it was like a critic screening it was at like the academy theater in new york city it's the only time i've ever been there yeah it was a very nice theater yeah, I just giant feel, Oscar statue. Yeah, outside. yeah. I just feel like uh, I, I, you know, he is such a talented filmmaker. But these last few films, I, you know, clearly no one ever says no to him about no. anything. No, he's yeah, he's <laughs> that's probably a, a fair point. He's past the point where he. I don't think he gets much uh, pushback ever. Yeah, yes. pushback editing, yes. what have you. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't put it as uh, one of my. My favorite uh, Quentin Tarantino movies, this filmmaker who I've apparently heard of before, but uh, I, I rewatched it a little while ago for some reason, and I'm blanking on why. And uh, I liked it a little bit more than I had originally. The ending, I think, is problematic. Yeah. Well, I, I may take another look at it when I have time, which is very rarely these days. You don't days, work very but, hard. Uh, don't lie. But it is there now for everyone to reevaluate or watch for the first time on Netflix. Also new to Netflix, We Are the Best, Lucas Moodyson's film about Bobo, Clara, and Hedvig, three teenage girls living in Stockholm in 1982 who decided to start a punk band despite the fact that they can't play instruments and only have one song, a heartfelt ode to their dislike of P.E. called Hate the Sport. This is really one of the most endearing films of the year and uh, just a great ode to how a punk rock spirit can live on even in girls living relatively uh, untroubled lives in 80s Sweden. Um, So that is now on Netflix. And finally, uh, this is actually not new yet, though it's due to get some new episodes soon. I wanted to recommend... High Maintenance, a web series which has been kind of unfolding slowly on Vimeo. You can find it at highmaintenance.tv. It's created by the husband and wife team of Ben Sinclair and Katya Blitchfeld, uh, who've also both worked in TV and acting and casting before. And many people have recommended this to me. I feel like it's the only web series in the wild world of web series that has gotten consistent and very high critical praise. Hi. Uh, um, it is about a pot dealer whose name was just re- uh, named the guy in IMDb, played by Sinclair, who delivers pot around New York City. And each episode is a little, it's basically a little short film. It's a snapshot of a different person or couple or group of people's lives. And this sounds very 
I think uh, this concept sounds very goofy, right? You expect a lot of just kind of, I don't know, like four room style comedy, Mm -hmm. but it's actually a lot of, there are a lot of them are very sweet and sometimes a little melancholy. Uh, Some of the early episodes are themed. One is definitely themed around the hipster grifter who was this actual girl in New York who, who grifted people in the hipster community. Uh, there's one about like a group of progressive feminists, hipster assholes, and a couple who are trying to make it work having Airbnb guests in their loft. But there's also a, as it goes on, this kind of great like little short with Hannibal Burris, the comedian, essentially playing himself and trying to recover from a slightly traumatic incident on the road. And another one about a woman who's ill and whose friend orders pot for her for the first time. They're actually really great little short films and I really loved this series. And Vimeo is funding new episodes in their basically their attempt to make a house of cards. Um, they they are paying for episodes of uh, new episodes of High Maintenance, which will premiere on November 11th, which is very soon. So now is your time to catch up. I finally did, and I really like this. And really, you can watch all of these episodes in like under two hours. So it's worth it. That's at HighMaintenance.tv. Okay, we also had, I think Ryan, one of our listeners, actually recommended that series to us as well. So. Yeah, uh, many people have. I feel like even the New Yorker's TV critic, Emily Nussbaum, has written it up as one she likes. So, so yes, believe us all. It's very good. All right, how about two lis- actual <laughs> listen- <laughs> official listener recommendations? All right, first up, I have a recommendation from Joe, who writes, I wanted to give a big recommendation to House of Saddam, an HBO BBC miniseries about the rise and fall of Saddam Hussein that I started watching on Amazon Prime and ended up canceling plans in order to finish all four hours uh, in one marathon sitting. Stories of power struggles based on history have always been fertile source materials for conflict-based dramas, but I really have to hand it to everyone involved in making this production for making it so consistently exciting, easy to get wrapped up in, and engaging on a human level, even when focusing on so many morally compromised characters. Deep-voiced Iraqi-Israeli actor uh, Yigal Nayor gives a tremendous performance as Saddam, giving him a fearsome gravitas, but also a fully dimensional humanity, especially in later scenes after the 2003 U.S. invasion. The entire ensemble is strong all around, with a standout supporting role and performance of Philip Arditi as the truly frightening Uday Hussein. Don't make the mistake I did in letting this excellent miniseries sit unwatched in the nether regions of my Netflix DVD queue for years. Just start watching it. I'll never think of Saddam or life in Iraq generally the same way again. And then I have a recommendation from Peter who writes, I really need to give you guys a streaming recommendation. It's the recent film, My Brother the Devil. The story follows two Egyptian brothers growing up in the poor parts of London and it follows their relationship and maturation. The film plays like a mix of La'en, a separation, and blue is the warmest color. It's a really interesting mix. Uh, the story is masterfully written and directed by newcomer Sally El Husseini. I think it's the most unexpected and excellent debut film since Brick, and it is on Netflix now. Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number from your my list. You give me number 39, which is actually not a film. It is a TV show, oh. uh, Parenthood. Cheating, cheating. Yeah. It's Parenthood, the NBC series developed by Jason Kadams and starring Peter Krause, Lauren Graham, Dax Shepard, Monica Potter, and others. All of my coworkers are obsessed with it. 
and therefore Melissa loves Parenthood. Yeah, my wife, huge but, Parenthood fan. Um, therefore, I stuck it on my Netflix queue, and it has just stayed there. Now I don't have to watch now it. It's I don't on have the list. To. It's just gonna sit there. I mean, it's one of those things, especially with a TV show like that, where it was a network TV show. It is a network TV show on its last season now, but there are a lot of episodes. You know, some of the right. first seasons, especially, I think, are the full twenty-four episodes. It's a big commitment. It, yeah, it can be a little intimidating to get into, but I have no doubt I will enjoy it when someday thousands of years from now <laughs> i watch parenthood all right matt it is your turn are you ready yes okay three new picks all right first up i've actually got a double feature my first two picks i'm suggesting you watch together not allowed no I, hey you you had a tv show for your <laughs> my list pick i anything goes it's thunderdome in here now <laughs> yeah it's a perfect double feature of fight to the death movies the Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and Battle Royale, the 2000 Japanese movie that was... I mean, I don't know if they've ever acknowledged it was an inspiration for The Hunger Games, it but like it clearly had to is, be, right? Yeah. certainly came first. Um, but yeah, I'd say start there, watch Battle Royale, and then move on to Catching Fire, last year's Hunger Games sequel, which was actually, I thought, pretty good. Yeah. I, was, I thought it was better than the first movie, and I, I thought a very solid uh, uh, blockbuster to the point where I am looking forward to the uh, the next one, which I think comes out next month. So not only is this a good double feature, you could actually make it into a triple feature. You could watch Battle Royale, you could watch Catching Fire, and then you can go to the theater to watch Mockingjay Part 1. And then I guess you have to wait, whatever it is, six months to turn it into a <laughs> quadruple feature. But uh, both of those films are streaming on Netflix right now. Battle Royale and The Hunger Games Catching Fire. Not uh, the lightest double feature, but uh, both both strong films. Uh, this one, well, this one is sort of connected to my other pick. It's on Amazon Prime, and it's about teenagers. Thankfully, it's a lot less violent. It's Palo Alto. It's Francis Ford Coppola's uh, granddaughter's uh, named Gio Coppola, and this is her feature directorial debut. debut. <laughs> it's her debut film, and it's a nicely observed high school drama about a trio of teenage lost souls uh, the script is actually based on a book of short stories by James Franco. Who? Exactly. And uh, he actually is in the film in a supporting role. But it's basically about these these teenagers, mostly. It's about these three kids. Uh, Emma Roberts' character, who is uh, kind of considering a relationship with her slimy gym teacher, played by James Franco. And then you also have Teddy, who's played by Jack Kilmer, son of Val Kilmer. Who's, this, who's in the movie. Who's also in the movie, that's right. And uh, Teddy is this is a sweet kid, but he's sort of easily led into bad behavior by the third main character, which is Fred, this crazy, reckless kind of sociopath. Actually, he's almost insane, but a very good performance by uh, Nat Wolf there. Uh, it definitely actually feels probably more like a Sofia Coppola movie than a Francis Ford Coppola movie. But it's a it's a strong debut film. It has very good performances. You know, Emma Roberts is really good. And Jack Kilmer is really good, and I thought Nat Wolf was uh, especially good. And um, yeah, I think it's worth seeing. It's it. Uh, I have a I knew I know someone who is from the area where it's set, and she said that it was eerily close to the real place and and what the folks that live there are like. So apparently, it's 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 got that that going for it as well. So that's Palo Alto, and that's streaming now on Amazon Prime. All right, two listener recommendations. All right, our first here is from Richard, and um, I'm going to skip to the recommendation part of this, and he says, if you don't have to see American Mary for the show, and we didn't because it was 
one of the listeners' choice options, but it did not win. He says, I hope you'll still watch it. It's small and smart and moving and perfect. And if you're looking for ugly WTF moments, it's got those as well. Uh, but all three movies this week are interesting, and I'm sure I'll end up enjoying whatever you guys pick. Thanks for all your good work, both at the IFC podcast and here. You guys are the best. That was from Richard. Thanks, so Richard. Thank mm-hmm. you, Richard. And uh, he was recommending American Mary, which is, I believe, streaming on Netflix. We didn't end up watching it, but we figured we'd put in a little extra recommendation for it there. And we've also got a recommendation here from James in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. We have a lot of Canadian listeners. It's interesting. Uh, James writes, Hi, Matt Nelson. I have a Halloween-themed streaming recommendation for you guys. It's William Peter Blatley's The Exorcist 3, which is streaming on Crackle at the moment, at least in Canada. If any horror film didn't need two sequels and two prequels, it's The Exorcist, and yet The Exorcist 3 is a solid supernatural police procedural. Taking place 15 years after the original film, Detective Kinderman, now played by George C. Scott, investigates a series of grisly ritualistic murders that resemble the work of a serial killer who was executed the same night as Regan McNeil's exorcism. Blatty's not out to produce cheap thrills, but deliver a character-driven piece. It's a tightly written film with an unsettling atmosphere that's very watchable, and there's terrific performances from Scott and Ed Flanders, who plays Father Dyer. They handle Blatty's wordy, stylized dialogue really well. It's a flawed film. Uh, Blatty's direction is a little stagey, and the ending is a little convoluted and forced, but... It's still compelling and has enough going for it that I would definitely recommend it. Keep up the great work. That was from James in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. And that's a movie that I've heard people have recommended to me on numerous occasions. I've never gotten around to yeah, seeing it. I've never it. seen it either. I've seen both of the terrible prequels, but I've never seen Exorcist 3. I'm going to have to watch it. So that's Exorcist 3 streaming now on Crackle, at least in Canada. <laughs> All right. One from your My List. You gave me number 58, and that is... This week is The Forest for the Trees by Marin Ada, who directed a movie I really liked a few years ago called Everyone Else. Yeah. This is an earlier film of hers from 2003, and that's basically all I know about it. It's on here because I was a big fan of Everyone Else, and after I saw that movie, I went, what else has this filmmaker made? And this was the other film that she's made that was available on Netflix. I'll give you the plot description. A naive educator leaves her small town behind to teach at an upscale metropolitan high school in this engrossing character study. Have you seen this movie, Allison? I have not. No, me neither. But uh, I added it on there. And when you watch Parenthood, I guess I no. will get around to watching it. I it's it sounds interesting, and I've I really heard good things about it. As I really well. liked everyone else, so I have no excuse, and I I I do want to see it. Hopefully, at one of these days, I'll get around to uh, having when I have some free time. Hopefully, I'll get to watch The Forest for the Trees. All right. Well, every episode, we give you three options in your listener's choice poll, and you tell us what you want us to review in our next episode. So we have three new options for you this week, and they are all recent-ish releases, some of which we've already discussed. Uh, Matt, what's our first film option? Our first film is not new-ish. It is new. I believe it is still in theaters. It just opened in theaters, but you can get it on Amazon and iTunes and other places. 
It's Listen Up, Philip. It is written and directed by Alex Ross Perry, a, a guy I, I it was a former coworker of mine at Kim's Video, actually. Yeah, and uh, he, I used to be on a trivia team with him on occasion at Videology. Oh, that's right. That's right. I he forgot. knows a lot of movie trivia. He is a well-educated man when it comes to film, absolutely. Um, but we will not let our personal aff- affiliations uh, stand. No. Boo, if, that guy. If, if we dislike the movie, we will we will tell you. We will be completely honest and unbiased. Um, but I really enjoyed, honestly, I really enjoyed uh, Alex's last movie, The Color Wheel. I thought it was a really, really strong film. And I'm really looking forward to seeing this one, which has a, a big name cast. It's got Jason Schwartzman and Elizabeth Moss and Jonathan Price as well. Uh, the plot synopsis here says Philip, that's Jason Schwartzman's character, is a writer waiting for the publication of his second novel, and he feels bored of his daily life and his shaky relationship with his girlfriend Ashley, played by Elizabeth Moss. In all of this chaos, his idol, Ike Zimmerman, that's Jonathan Price, offers him his summer home, an isolated place where he finds peace. Now, you've seen the movie already? I have. And? I liked it. I okay, liked it good. a lot. All right. Well, I haven't seen it, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's one I definitely want to see, certainly before the end of the year, but as soon as possible. So... That's option one. Listen up, Philip, which you can rent on Amazon, iTunes, and a bunch of other places. Option number two is a movie we I, I recommended before. It is We Are the Best, Lucas Moodyson's punk rock girl saga, which is new to Netflix and I think, you know, could potentially be uh inspire some discussion of movies about bands or punk rock or I don't know, living in Stockholm. A topic. I have a lot to say about that. I know, me too. So, uh, and it's also just, I think, one of, it's it's a movie that I know is going to be on some top ten lists at the end of the year, and I think it'll be fun to talk about. I haven't seen it, so it's an it's another one that I absolutely need to see, and so I might have bullied you into putting it on there, but I feel fine with that. I was fine with it. Good, that's good. Option number three, another recent film, a newish one. Probably this one qualifies as as actually newish. It is Venus in Fur. It's the latest film from director Roman Polanski. It premiered at Cannes in 2013. I think it played in theaters earlier in the year, 2014, here in the U.S., and it's now available for streaming on Netflix. And it's a, it's a two-hander, as they say, with uh, Emmanuel Sonnier and Matthew Almerich, two very good actors, and uh, as the title suggests, it is it is related to the novel, the Venus in Furs novel, but it's it's not a strict adaptation. It is about a a theater director played by Matthew Almerk who's casting a new production of an adaptation, and it is about. You know, I thought I saw I, I watched part of this the the, the night I got, came home from watching Birdman, and it actually makes a really interesting double it feature does, with that because it's about the theater and directing and acting and writing and the creative process and all. And of it's those all sorts set of in this case in the theater. And it's all set entirely in this theater, and it's basically this long conversation and audition uh, between the actor and the, and the director, and and it's it's pretty interesting. And uh, Allison, you have seen this one as well. I have seen this one, and it's. I, There's I a actually, lot to talk I, about. There is a lot to talk about in it. And I actually liked it much more than I would have expected. When you hear, oh, it's adapted from a play. And it's that, only two people. It's, it's all often, one location. Yeah, it often seems like it's going to be very kind of claustrophobic. And it's going or, to look or a little... Or a trifle. Yeah, or it's just going to look very stagey, you know, like it's not very right. cinematic. But I think that this is not that 
at all. And I, I was very impressed by it, actually. So and there's, as you mentioned, a lot to talk about. With Plenty that. to talk about with that one as well. Yeah. So that's Venus in Fur. And that is streaming now on Netflix. All right. Well, which of these movies should we review in the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can email us your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, November 3rd at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, November 11th. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. Don't forget to keep sending us your recommendations. The email address, as always, is svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And just a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, it never hurts to leave us an iTunes review. Go on iTunes, give us five stars. Say how great we are. Don't say something mean. Don't say something mean about how I make stings. funny voices. It stings. I don't look, so. I, I look at everyone. Just to protect myself. And then I smolder in rage. So if unless you want me to be smoldering in rage. A weeping on the inside. And smoldering on the outside. <laughs> leave us a review, a positive review on iTunes. No pressure. But it's really nice when you do that. For Film Spotting SVU, I am Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Bye.